Uh, if you didn't know, we're just three days, by the way, three days away from Christmas, two days from Christmas Eve, which means we are in the official ramp up of the holiday season. And with that tonight, we thought, man, it would be really appropriate and important if we just spent some time focusing in on the mystery and beauty that is Christmas by first pressing into what we think is an indispensable staple in this holiday season, and that is Hallmark Christmas movies. We thought this would be the appropriate time to bring it up. Uh, I think it's the gift that keeps on giving. I took a, I took a deep dive this year. I did a, just a strong investment. I got the app and have been living my best life. Uh, every year there are a lot of us, specifically in this room, who anticipate these wildly mediocre stories uh, about romance and snow and Wrangler jeans and cabins with mistletoe and, of course, that perfect happy ending. And as silly as I know that these movies are, you can't argue that they're not doing something right. This year alone, it was expected that over 85 million people would watch these lovely yet underwhelming movies during the holiday season. <laughs> and according to a recent study from Broadcasting and Cable, Hallmark would be, in fact, the highest rated and most watched cable network for the entire fourth quarter. Because, and they've, they've tapped into this, Hallmark has spent decades perfecting a formula that has turned Christmas movies into not only an incredible source of revenue for them, but into a household holiday commodity. All that to say that there is something to these desperately simple movies that connects to so many of us in a meaningful way. And in the full spirit of confession, because we are family, uh, this season, I have watched my fair share of Hallmark Christmas movies. I'm not going to tell you how many, because that's not appropriate. But I, I am going to let you know that I did that. And I'm telling you shamelessly, I'm not going to apologize for this, because the truth is, I couldn't handle anything else. I mean, I needed a happy ending this season. And I needed it over and over and over and over and over again because some years are just like that. There's something in each of these movies, perfectly formulaic and predictable as they were, that met me where I was at. Something that tapped into my need to know that the story ends well. Was I sitting on the edge of my seat, wondering what, the story, what would happen in the story as it played out? Absolutely not. Was I anxiously wondering if the guy would somehow decide to leave his luxurious and lucrative life in LA to live in a cabin deep within the woods of Colorado with his new blushing blonde who works at the local bakery? No, I was not. And some of y'all saw that one, huh? <laughs> some of the men are like, babe, I think uh, we, last night, I don't know. Uh, because with these Hallmark stories, we know how they end every single time. And even though we've seen them, and I've seen them over and over and over again, this metaphoric story of sorts, there is something in me that still finds comfort in them. Like Gerald said, uh, we are, according to the liturgical or church calendar in the season of Advent, and if you're unfamiliar with what that is, the, the church calendar is uh, something that's been used by churches for centuries that follows the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And Advent is the season when we, as God's people, spiritually prepare to sit in a place of waiting with expectation as we move towards this idea or this concept of celebrating our coming King, Jesus. And in the time of Advent, we, like the people at Hallmark, tell and share a story we've heard a thousand times before. But we do it not to check off some religious rule book or list that we have for the Advent season, but we do it to enter in once again to a story that connects to all of us. 
And just like Hallmark, while we know the ending, we are meant to get lost in the story and to allow it to change us, to bring us comfort in a harsh and often dark world and to let it lead us to hope where we desperately need it. So with that, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter two. Today, we're gonna look at verse one. We're gonna kind of read through the, the Christmas story. And by we, I mean, I will. Again, we'll pick up at verse one. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Familiar? Are you tracking, everybody? Know the story? Do you feel like I should be like Linus holding my blankie and, no? Anybody? Some of you. Verse eight, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, but the, uh, I, will, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. Now, this is a story that I could almost guarantee most of us in this room are familiar with. Usually the image that's drawn to mind is something like this. Less pixely though. Do you know, try to imagine it less pixely. Uh, we've got Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus. We have the shepherds, farm animals, which I love. And all of them are gathering around and celebrating this idea of Jesus being Emmanuel, which is God now with us. And while I know for many, this story and image alike evokes a deep sense of hope and joy, connecting us to deep places within our hearts, I am wondering if still for the rest of us, it doesn't do much more than remind us of a story we were once told. Or more than that, lead us back to places of nostalgia. Nostalgia by definition is a bittersweet longing for things or persons or situations of the past. It's this idea of importing and imposing our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings about a past experience, and then from those creating something meaningful in the present. And this practice, this act of nostalgia is never more alive than at Christmas. I, you gotta think about the incredible lengths we go to recreate the magic of yesteryear. This year alone in my neighborhood, I saw seven leg lamps from the Christmas story movie. Anybody? You don't, is it too inappropriate with the swearing and all that? Anyway, I thought, man, if we're 
desperate for nostalgia. Now is the time, and also we need revival in this city. It was uh, an out-of-control experience. Nostalgia, for a lot of us, especially in the holiday season, is one of our very best coping mechanisms. And I know that sounds harsh, but I think it's a really true thing. In our stress-filled, overly busy lives, virtually all of us want some kind of relief. And we find it often by visiting or revisiting in our imaginations or recreating altogether childhood Christmases from the past. And this longing in us is legitimate and it's also powerful, but it's usually the echo of the ache of something deeper. This Christmas, I have wondered a lot about our approach to the holiday season. And if somehow this power of nostalgia has seeped into how we view God in this place as well. Because we know how the story goes and we know how it ends. We come to the manger and we find Jesus and he's there and he's quiet and he's humble and he's small. Which by the way, is in great contrast to the man we find on Easter. You know, Jesus on Easter leaves us with zero wiggle room to wonder what he's after and about. But the baby on Christmas is much different. He's silent. We watch as he is worshiped and adored without mandates or proclamations, which again makes me wonder how the voiceless Jesus in the manger has allowed me to come into this season, spiritually speaking, with my own set of ideals or conceptions of what this whole thing is about. If I have set on him using my voice, my ideas, beliefs, and renderings of what it means to enter into this story, and if maybe in it all I am missing something. Nostalgia has a way of shining light on our misconceptions about our lives, but it also has a way of shining light on our misconceptions about God. And so my ask for tonight is that in the spirit of Christmas, we try to set aside our ideas of the manger and the story that we've heard over and over again and listen for what was and is amidst the silence being told. Can you do that? Okay, well, you can, thank you. Now, we're going to do it. That's what's happening because I'm on the microphone. Now, in order to do this properly, we're gonna have to go back a bit We're gonna have to go back to our story in Luke and we're gonna have to reframe it or maybe better said, properly frame it. The setting and the context of our story, it's really important if we're actually gonna understand the weight of what's really going on and what's happening. Look down, Luke 2, verse one. Now the story starts off and we're introduced to a man by the name of Caesar Augustus. And he was actually historically the emperor of Rome at the time when Jesus was born. And he was a figure meant to represent political salvation though it was for the people of Israel quite the opposite. Israel was under Roman occupation, meaning they were ruled and governed by Rome. And what we know of Rome at the time is that it dominated most of the Mediterranean and was an empire that notably created the facade of peace and security, all the while perpetuating the suffering of the people in their midst. They were rulers known for instilling fear within the lives of those they governed, fear then being their primary method of exercising leadership, which leads us to this census we're told about in verses two and three. The census was much more uh, than a small thing. It was actually a really big deal because it was for the whole known world. And it wasn't just a collection of background information for simple record keeping or statistics. Its purpose was to effectively and efficiently tax everyone in the Roman Empire and to even keep them in check, if you will. This was kind of their checks and balance system. 
in a brutal way. Now, for us, when we think of a census, we think easy enough. I mean, I actually didn't know I had been a part of a census until this morning, but I have. And that's how mindless it is. I was like, have I been a part of the census? And Gerald said, yes. So I must have been. And, and that's how simple it is. We fill out some form and we send it in and that's our census experience. But that wasn't true in the first century. Censuses were historically the breeding ground for riots and murder and lots of death. They, by their very nature, raise sharp and dangerous questions about who runs the world and how it's run and who profits by it all and who gets crushed in the process. And maybe more importantly, when is it all going to change and what are we supposed to be doing about it? So Luke here, our author, through this context in his brilliance and subtlety is deliberately aligning Jesus with the Jewish kingdom movements, the revolutions that declared that there would be no king but God. And it's in these few lines that so many of us would bypass without a second thought that the stage is set for us to understand the historic ache of the people of Israel. They were weary and waiting for this kind of revolution, weary and worn from the oppression and the fearful leadership of Rome. And they were eager to know that their suffering would end, that their justice would give way to iniquity, that the prophecies of old would give way to the fulfillment of the promise to know that their story would end well. You see, the Jewish people from a very young age would study the Hebrew scriptures. And in them, they would have read about this future hope, the, the promise of a deliverer, a king and a leader, a second and even greater Moses who would restore Israel once and for all. And so as Luke uh, unfolds our story, we enter into it now aware of the people's desperation mindful of their forward-facing hope, marked by the echo and the utterances of the promises and prophecies of old. But the question we have to ask when we come to a text like this, as we enter in with these people, is what is it that they were looking for exactly? What were these prophecies that gave them so much hope? So with that, would you turn with me to Micah chapter 5. If you're unfamiliar with Micah, I don't really know how to tell you how to get there, so... Use your concordance, you know, your little, what's it called? Is that a concordance? What's that called? Index, table of contents. Nobody knows in this room. Use your table of contents. I am failing library 101, whatever's happening. Micah chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, I can't. I don't know what it is. So, you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites." And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Verse 5, and he will be our peace. Now this book, like mo most books of prophecy, speak to both God's judgment and restoration. And in this passage, we find Micah describing Israel's future. And in that, who and where their ruler would come from. We read he would come from a town called Bethlehem, this small, poor, no-name, nothing town. And yet Bethlehem to the people would be a significant and obvious marker for those looking for this coming king. 
The text goes on to describe this ruler, and in it we're told that he will be a shepherd to the people, painting a picture of a more robust ruler than they had known. He would both care and govern his people, and we read his rule would usher in both security and peace. Security in the Hebrew here paints a picture of a home or a secure dwelling. Think about a place you've lived for a long time. Maybe it's your childhood home. This is kind of the idea here. And we're told too that the king who was coming would not just grant people a home, but he would grant people, the whole people, Israel as a people, a home. And remember that they had been a homeless people without a land to dwell on. We're also told that he would be their peace. And notice it doesn't say that he would give them peace or provide a place of peace, but that he would be their peace. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom, which I know so many of you are familiar with, but it means completion or wholeness, meaning he alone would be to them the satisfaction of their souls. And this is just one of the prophecies. Would you turn with me over to Isaiah? A little bit easier to find, but again, use your table of contents if need be. Isaiah chapter seven. It's a bit of a Bible drill in here this, this evening, so enjoy that. Challenge yourself, you know? It's what we did in the Baptist world. Yeah. Anyway, that's a different conversation. Uh, chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. Now, when we jump in here, this is just one verse, we find Yahweh speaking to one of Israel's most famous prophets, Isaiah. And in this verse, we find him in the middle, actually, of a, of a passionate moment with the king at the time, King Ahaz. And in this moment, Ahaz is refusing to ask Yahweh for a sign of the coming Messiah. And so Isaiah comes right out with this declaration. He says, the sign of the Messiah would be that the firstborn was, would be born of a virgin. A clear marker that God, who out of nothing makes something, was on the move in a familiar act of faith. And we're told he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I know we've sung this and heard this name for God about a thousand times, but would you just stay with me for a second? In this moment, we're told that Messiah isn't going to be a lofty or far off king, separated from the realities of our humanity and its suffering, but in fact, he would be God with us, which means he would be in it too. He would put on skin like ours and go to family functions like ours and be hurt and frustrated and lost like we are. He would experience for himself the realities of brokenness and humanity. He would, in the language of Eugene Peterson, move into the neighborhood, which means that where God was once far off and removed, he would now be coming close. And it would be this closeness, his humanity, that would be a sign to us and to them that he was really who he said he was and that he would actually be able to save and deliver us. The God who hates injustice now coming to face it and its realities head on. The God who is perfect in love, who is holy and unblemished, coming into the depths and the realities of our world, full of sin and evil and darkness, to be with us, to know us, and to deliver us. I want to look at one more. Turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 9. It should just be one page in your Bible. We read this at the beginning of the gathering. I just want to reiterate it to us here. I'll read one and two, verses one and two, and then six to seven. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Verse six, for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. Now, in chapter 9, Isaiah's prophecy speaks to Israel's history, specifically their time in exile and in Babylon, and yet in it we find a promise, a promise of return, a return of Israel to Jerusalem and a return of God's presence to his people. And in verses 1 and 2, we find a turning and an announcement of a coming and impending comfort. It could be better phrased, he's coming back at last. People who have found themselves separated from God in a foreign land and enslaved to other people that were not their own would finally have their moment of breakthrough. Here in Isaiah's vision, we find a light now shining on those whose lives were marked by darkness, the exhaustion and weariness of wandering in places of hopelessness. And in verse six, it's almost as if Isaiah is answering the how for us. How does this happen? What has caused this? The prophecy tells us that there is a child coming, and through him, just as in previous prophecies, we see that God will actually put on flesh, and that he will usher in a new way of living, hope for freedom from our present situations, counsel for all that seems impossible, peace in order for our disorder and our chaos, and a never-ending rule of salvation. To be clear, Isaiah's prophecy isn't about an escape from these realities or the realities of the world or a world of evil or politics or economics or empires or taxes or wars. It is, as N.T. Wright puts it, about a God addressing these problems at last from within, the com from within coming into our world, his world, and shouldering the burden of authority, coming to deal with the problems of evil, of chaos and violence and oppression in all their horrible forms. And only when we look hard at these promises and come to grips with what they really mean, we are able to grasp the real comfort and joy that Christmas does truly provide. These were all the promises and prophecies that the people in Luke chapter 2 had in mind as they waited and prayed for their deliverance. And it's from these scriptures and these prophecies that we're now able to shift our gaze back to the manger and find more than a sleeping baby, more than a cooing, quiet infant, but instead a king who is inaugurating his kingdom. From these prophecies, we know that darkness will be overcome, that in this coming kingdom, dar darkness will always give way to light that the dark will be broken by the dawn, that the waiting and the aching and the longing in our lives for evil to once and for all be dealt with will give way to victory. That's the promise and reality of this kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, death always precedes resurrection. And our story will always be that we were people who were walking in great darkness and upon us an even greater light has dawned. And we don't just experience that light and have an encounter with that light, but we get to live in the realities of that light. We get to now see in new ways and understand things we wouldn't have understood before. 
Darkness has to give way to light. And so we fear nothing in this new kingdom. Next, we see that peace will have the final word. Jesus' coming gives us the promise of peace. It's a guarantee. It's not just a momentary circumstantial peace, but the deep and profound completion and wholeness in all of life. Life here and life to come. Peace that is eternal, that will transcend this body, this time, and this space. Peace that reaches into the ache of our hearts and guarantees us a home, a place to rest on, a place to find true lasting comfort, a peace that is marked by union and by the presence of a person. This is the peace that this kingdom offers us. And finally, we see that in Jesus' coming, we will experience in full God with us. We see that our king would now be near, not far off. And this promise means that he is not unaware or distant from us. It means that no matter what you've done and no matter how you feel or what you did last night or what you were thinking 30 minutes ago, he is able to come close. And he longs to come close. This reign of his is a reign marked by love, not by fear, guilt, and condemnation. It is perfect, it casts out all fear, it brings light and liberty. And in that, in this space of his presence, he longs to be to us a counselor when we don't know what to do, when we can no longer orient our lives. He wants to be mighty and big in all the ways that we actually need God to be big to us, warring against evil, working against all injustice, avenging the work of the enemy. This is who he wants to be to us, an everlasting father, which means he would be one now with the father, perfect in Trinitarian union, able to embody God's holy and perfect presence here on earth with us. And finally, God with us means that he would be a ruler of peace over our lives, peace to the unsure future, peace in the mystery where the questions still linger. Peace, completion, wholeness. This is what it means to have God with us. Now, we don't have time to go back through our text, but would you turn with me back to Luke chapter two? I promise you're all getting stickers after this, like in a massive way. Just like sticker after sticker after sticker. You did a good job. Luke chapter two. I won't use that at the seven because y'all didn't laugh very much. (laughs) Thank you for the feedback. Luke chapter two. I want you to just look down at verse four with me. And it's in verse four that we're finally introduced to Mary and Joseph. These are poor, uneducated Jewish people, aware of the realities and oppression of Rome, and yet now also aware of the fulfillment of the coming promise. Certainly they were wondering if this was really how the king that they had learned about and studied about in temple and waited for their whole lives would actually come to them in a small rugged town in a barn. And yet it's in their homage that we find fulfillment after fulfillment of promises and prophecies they would have known well. Their journey was not some dusty pilgrimage, but instead a trumpeting call of the inauguration of a new reality. God binding himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of a baby in a manger. Not even remotely arriving the way anyone thinks he should have. There was no dignity or debutantes, just a young virgin, a mason and a crew of shepherds on whom a great light had shone. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace had come. And he had come first to the lowly, 
echoing with his arrival that the kingdom would first be revealed to the lowest place, even the dirty places, because the salvation he brought would be the kind to turn the world order upside down. The kingdom, his kingdom, would reorient lives around freedom. His people would now be marked by humility, not status or works. And it, that, that whole essence of coming in the low places would be the gateway to our salvation. Lives now that look forward, not backwards, with fear of what lies ahead. We are now fearless people marked by the peace and withness of God. The story of Jesus' birth and the angel's song has been placed within this everyday story because we aren't meant to know that Jesus' birth is not an invitation to a private religion or a stream of emotional nostalgia into which we can escape and feel really comfortable in our Christmas season. It's not a menial invitation to a one singular sentiment at Christmas, but it is more, in fact, a summons to us, as it was to his first followers, to sign on under his authority and to celebrate the inauguration of this new kingdom altogether. A new government, a new way of living, the coming triumph and presence of God made manifest precisely in the darkness of the age. In Advent, we sit in this paradox of our faith in both waiting and hastening, in suffering and in joy, in judgment and in deliverance, apocalyptic woe and eschatological hope. As Fleming Rutledge says, in Advent, we don't pretend that we are in darkness before the birth of Christ. Rather, we take a good hard look at the darkness we are in now, facing and defining it honestly so that we will understand with the utmost clarity that our great and holy hope is in Jesus's final victorious coming. The season of Advent, according to the church calendar, actually begins with what we call the last things. Or if you were like a child in the 90s, the end times. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we all read the books. Uh, think that, right? So actually Advent is christened on the thrust of that, of the last things, the apocalyptic God, if you will. And the eschatological conclusion of the world actually inaugurates the birth in Bethlehem. And this is so because we're meant to understand and to grasp in deeper ways that the God of the end of the age, the eternal judge, the king of kings, the creator of worlds, the alpha and omega, is who comes to us as a little baby, all this majesty and all this bigness now coming in a small way. Fleming Rutledge in her book said, if he just came as a baby and then you begin to unfold who he was, you wouldn't get the robustness of what was actually happening. He has to come as this magnificent and huge God, huge and, and, and he has to be able to make himself small so that you'll know that your salvation is what it really is. That the God who comes isn't just a lowly baby in a manger, but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The God of our salvation became small for our sake, for our deliverance and for our salvation. And it is not just a story we are telling, but a reality we get to sit in day in and day out. Now I know like Israel, we too still feel the ache, the ache of things not quite right or fixed. We live in the in-between space where death isn't fully defeated and death, darkness still finds a way. But today I get to say to you, it won't always be like this. In Advent, we are to look forward, not backwards, not fearing what's ahead, not looking through the lens of nostalgia, but to face head on the Christmas season and whatever comes after that, because we do so with the promise that our King has come 
and is coming again. And we know that our story ends well. Like I said earlier in this Christmas season, I've needed my fair share of happy endings, even if they were scripted terribly. (laughs) And the truth is that's because I've been sitting in darkness more than usual. This season has been one marked by loss for me. I've lost some significant relationships over the past few months and felt the deep ache of that. And while I've sensed God in it and leading me in present has still been a place of great confusion and pain and injury for me. And the truth is, I'm still here, you know, in the dark, um, in the waiting place, in the painful place. And I am not sure that I'm gonna get the happy ending I was hoping for. In fact, I'm fairly certain this is not gonna look the way I think it should because I've been so delicately reminded this week that Jesus rarely comes the way we expect him to. But what I'm holding on to is this, that he is coming for me, that the darkness in my life will give way to the light. And even if that doesn't feel true right now, and it does not feel true right now, God is with me. And I've been promised a future and a hope marked by peace in his presence. And that church is what we get to hold on to in this holiday season. We don't have to run from the darkness. We don't have to avoid it. We don't have to distract ourselves. We get to look at it face on because as we face forward, we also face the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Hope for us in the kingdom will require faith and it is annoying. It's gonna demand that we look on and forward in good seasons and bad seasons alike. It will mean that though we are fully aware of the fact that things aren't perfect, aware of the tension of the now and the not yet, of the realities of pain and loss and grief, we can be confident that our outcome is certain because one day all of this will give way to the best of endings. In Christmas, we choose to remember that God has chosen to do something about everything that's wrong with this world And even though many of you in this room tonight even don't have your hope made reality yet, you can be confident that one day it will come, that you will see it with your eyes. Because the story of the kingdom, our story, this reality that we're sitting in specifically at Christmas time, and the banner that's over us is that our story ends well. That's the guarantee in this room. So as I've I've written this teaching, I've just thought, what about you? You know, I know where I'm at fully. I'm just like a feeling machine. I'm just constantly aware of all my feelings of what's not happening, who doesn't like me, who's looking at me strange, who's asleep in the back, wake up, sir, just kidding. That's a joke. I've always wanted to say that from the pulpit, nobody's asleep. But if you are, wake up. Uh, In Jesus' name. These are bad, this won't go anywhere on the podcast. But really, what about you? I know where I'm at, where are you at this season? Where are you really at this season? Where's there darkness and ache and pain in your life this holiday season? Now look, I know, not all of you are like, like, you're like, man, you're bringing me down 10 points at Christmas. That is a bummer. I came to church to be lifted up and now here I am in the pit. I'm like wondering, should I be sad about something? I know that some of you aren't there and that's totally wonderful. We celebrate with you and we ask you to celebrate quietly somewhere away from us. The question I have though is for those of you in the room who do know this is for you. And I would bet it's a large majority of us. 
I wonder what it would look like for God to um, encounter you today where you're at, or for you to bring to him this ache and this pain that you're experiencing. Where do you need darkness to be overcome in your life? Maybe it's addiction, maybe it's death, maybe it's impending sickness. Where do you need darkness to be overcome in your life? Where do you need peace? As you wait for your kids to come home and the anxiety builds because of where they're at, you're not sure what's going on and whatever, or maybe you just need to know that the future is secure, that you will have a job when you come back in January. Peace, that God is with you. Still, I wonder where some of us need to even experience God's presence with us in this season and the ache of our loneliness, the disappointment we feel with our family or our traditions that just aren't what they used to be, and the loss of a child this year, parents breaking up, whatever it may be. Where do you need God to be with you this holiday season? I never want us to come to this place, this family, and not actually deal with what's going on. So the invitation tonight is for just that, for you to respond to the Holy Spirit in whatever ways he's nudging you or leading you. Thanks for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. As many of you know, we're nearing the end of a year-long capital campaign to raise money for and buy this beautiful historic church building right on the inner east side of the urban core of Portland, Oregon. We can't wait. We're in the remodel project right now. Hope to move in in March of 2020. But right now, we're just raising money as a church to pay for this beautiful space. If you're a podcast listener, follower from another church, another city, and anything at all moves in your heart and you would like to give back and contribute toward our church and this project over and above whatever you give to your local church, which we're all for. If you have any questions or thoughts, just visit bridgetown.church give or shoot us an email for more information. Grace and peace.